All right. Thanks for the reading. Good evening, Tempe. How you guys doing? Good to see you. Uh, I love that passage because uh, Paul refers to himself as an old man, and I feel a special kinship to that. So um, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about aging tonight. No, we're not. We're going to look at uh, this uh, book of Philemon. By the way, I, and some of you are like, who is this guy? Never seen him before. Obviously, Ricardo's not here. So uh, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor at Redemption Church Arcadia. And uh, it's my privilege to be here with you all tonight. Was here all morning uh, with uh, your congregation, and it's and it's um, just been a blessing to be here. Uh, while I'm doing this, uh, Ricardo was supposed to be over at Arcadia, but he ended up having to go to California. So Jake went over and preached at Arcadia. Y'all know Jake Sablotnik, so he went over and preached at Arcadia. Uh, he was a little troubled by our liturgy over there, though. He didn't understand that we generally preach about two hours over at Arcadia, so he struck. I'm kidding. We don't do that because it's like, what are we in for tonight? No, not not going to do that tonight. Anyway, so um, I, I know it may not seem like it. Um, I'm a lot older than Rick. Rick is like very muscular, and I'm not. Um, but Rick and I actually have a lot in common. Um, it was about eight years ago, in fact, that uh, our founding pastor Justin Anderson uh, was called to San Francisco. Uh, by God to plant a church up there, and so uh, that left uh, these gaps in, in Tempe and Arcadia, and Rick was asked to be the lead pastor at Tempe, and I was asked to come in and be the lead pastor at Arcadia. So we, we both got our first calls to Arcadia as lead pastors, I'm sorry, to Redemption as lead pastors uh, when Justin left. The other thing is... Um, Rick and I were both college athletes. I don't know if you know this about Ricardo, but uh, he played at Arizona State University football. He started all four years for the team. Uh, two years, he was all conference in a really good football conference. One year, he led uh, the team in tackles. He was a very good football player. I've read write-ups on him. It said he hit like a truck. I mean, the guy is, you know, really, really tough. I, on the other hand, I went to Grand Canyon University. I was on the speech team over there. So... <laughs> So the commonalities are just gushing. I saw some lopes over there. I never, okay, that's, okay, I never really learned how to, I just went like this. I didn't know how to do it, so. Anyway, thanks for being here tonight. So, um, uh, let me pray, and then we're going to get into this little letter of uh, Philemon. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for who you are. Uh, we want to live lives of joy and gratefulness, and God, if, if we can do that, it's a result of looking at Jesus, your son, and what he's done for us. So we thank you for that as well. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us even now. I pray that, um, that we would welcome your spirit, that we would be filled, that we would uh, open our arms to your Holy Spirit. And for your word, we thank you as well, for your word and its truth. And I just pray that um, as we talk tonight, as we look at this little letter that Paul writes to Philemon, that, that we would be encouraged, that we would be edified, and that we would be built up, and that your gospel would shine through. God, I pray that although you use your people in ministry, I pray that you would also move me out of the way so that your word especially would be heard today, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, there are four 
there's a bunch of letters in the New Testament. There are, there are four that are really short. I call them the New Testament postcards. So 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Philemon. If there were such a thing as a postcard in the first century, you might be able to fit those letters on a postcard. So there's only one chapter of Philemon, 25 verses, and it's, and it's not written to a church, it's written to a person, a guy by the name of Philemon. So it's a personal letter, but it's filled with history and all kinds of lessons that apply to us today. And there are some that we'll never even be able to get to uh, tonight. And Paul does write it, interestingly enough. He wrote it about the same time that he wrote the letter that we just went through uh, the last nine weeks, he, uh, Philippians. He was in prison in Rome when he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. When he's writing to Timothy later on, he's in prison. Paul was actually in prison twice. He spent the years 60 and 61 in prison. If Acts had a chapter 29, if Luke had written chapter 29, it probably would have been about Paul's first two years in prison. And, and, and we learned from Philippians last um, during that series that Paul wasn't exactly sure if they were going to let him go, if they were going to execute him, but he felt like maybe he was going to get one more shot at this, and that's true. They did let him go. He was out until about 64 or 65. They rearrested him, again, for his faith. They're arresting him for his faith, for all the trouble he's causing by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They arrest him again. He's in prison, 64 and 65, and then they execute him for his faith in, in the year 65. So when Paul writes his letters, he'll start his letters one of two ways. He either says, I am a bondservant of Christ or a slave of Christ, or he will say, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And that's what he does when he's writing from prison in, in Rome. And, and really, for you English the people that like to study English and poetry and all that, that's a double entendre because there's a real sense in which he's a prisoner for the Lord in, in uh, Rome, physically in prison in Rome because of the Lord, for the Lord, but also kind of in a metaphor, uh, he also is a prisoner uh, for Jesus because Jesus has captured him. If you read Acts chapter 9, you read his story. Uh, Jesus, if anything, I'm sorry, Paul, if anything, was running as far away from Jesus as he could. He was going up to Damascus to kill Christians, uh, to persecute them, and Jesus came and simply captured him and turned his life around. So he's a prisoner of Jesus's in that regard uh, as well. What do we know about Philemon? There are some things that we can pick up from uh, this letter. First of all, we know that Philemon was probably a wealthy guy. He had this house that had servants, but also he had a house big enough that he was hosting a church in, in the house, so he probably had some money. Paul thinks very highly of him. They had had a long and very good relationship that Paul gets into in uh, this letter and references it uh, quite a bit, and, and Paul's not blowing smoke at Philemon. He, he is complimenting him, and at times it sounds like it's a little bit manipulative, a little bit too much flattery, but he really means this about Philemon. Probably Philemon lives east of Rome, probably in Colossae, so one of these churches that eventually Paul will write. And Paul writes him because uh, Philemon's slave, he's described as a slave in this letter, Onesimus, has wronged Philemon in some way. And most likely, according to what we know from the letter, this is the most likely scenario, he stole money from Philemon and then fled. And, and just ran away. And Paul, according to the letter, met Onesimus in prison in Rome. So somehow Onesimus ends up in prison in Rome and, and meets Paul, and Paul began to disciple him. 
Now, why was Onesimus in prison in Rome at this time? Well, he landed there for one of two reasons. The first speculation is the one I don't think is actually correct, but uh, some scholars say, well, he probably got caught for his, quote, crime against Philemon, and the Roman authorities took him to prison there. Uh, it's likely that that wasn't what happened because generally in those situations, once they catch somebody like that, they're just gonna take him right back to Philemon and let Philemon take care of it. Uh, the more likely scenario is that when uh, Onesimus stole this money and fled, he had in his mind, I'm gonna go to Rome because I know Paul is there and I know that this guy, Paul, is filled with grace and maybe he can help me through my post-crime distress. Uh, and maybe he can help me out uh, with that. And so that's likely what happened. And Paul does help him. He knew that Paul and Onesimus, uh, and Paul and, and Philemon had had this very long and good relationship. And so he heads to, to Rome to kind of go, okay, now what do I do? But here's the key to the letter. No matter how Onesimus ends up in Rome, Paul was appealing to Philemon to take Onesimus back, not as a slave, don't punish him for what he did to you. Forgive him and in fact, restore him and redeem him and make him a, he's a brother of yours in Christ now. I've been discipling him and he is a brother of ours in Christ now. So receive him back. And Paul says later on in the letter, he says, receive him back as you would receive me, an apostle of Christ. Treat him like you would uh, me. So we're just gonna work through the letter and make some application on the way. So here are the first three verses, and this is just the, the, the greeting. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, or Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Aphia is probably Philemon's wife. Archippus, by the way, anybody here named Archippus? That's an unusual name. Anybody? Anybody? No? Okay, so Jackie and I, my wife Jackie and I, we have two daughters, and I kept telling her, if we have another child and it's a boy, we're naming him Archippus, because I think that would be cool and unique. Nobody else in that school would have, anyway. It didn't happen, so we saved him that. Anyway, Archippus is either Philemon's son, or he's his best friend, or he's the pastor of their house church, and then obviously there's a local church that's meeting in their house. So then verses four through seven come next, and this is what we would refer to as the setup. Uh, this is a very common part of, an, of a first century Mediterranean letter that Paul writes, and, and he's setting him up for the main part of the letter, and he's praying for Philemon. Very common to pray for the recipients of the letter in a first century Mediterranean letter. So he writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul's praying for him, and he's setting him up for the ask that's coming in uh, this letter. But he's really diving deep into the fact that he's, he's saying, look, Philemon, you are a gospel-centered person now. You've been saved by grace through faith. 
Uh, you, you're, you're in Christ now, and as a result, your life has been transformed, and we've seen that transformation, and we've seen how that's led you to love other people, and we've seen how your life has become a testimony to many others. I'm getting ready to ask you to do something that's going to demonstrate even more transformation, further transformation that should be coming because you're a follower of Christ now. That's what he does. And in fact, the first word of the next section of the letter, Paul writes, accordingly, or Another way to say it is, therefore, because this is happening in your life, therefore, I need to ask you something. And you need to consider this. So, verses 8 through 16, here's what Paul writes. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I could tell you to do this. I could say, you need to do this because it's right, and I'm an apostle of Christ, just go and do it. But I'm not going to do that. Verse 9, because for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Do you hear the, you hear the compassion there in Paul? He calls Onesimus his child. It, it's, this, it's this understanding that spiritual DNA in the gospel is sometimes more powerful than family DNA. Sometimes we feel, more, we feel closer to people that are in Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, than we actually do some of our own actual biological family members. So I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful. Uh, uh, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful f- to you and to me. The word... Onesimus, the name Onesimus literally means useful or beneficial. That's what it means. And so Paul's doing a little rhetorical wordplay here. Paul was, Paul was a great writer and he was, he was always interested in using literary devices like this. So there's a little wordplay there. And then verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So let, let me just say something there. I've already mentioned the compassion that Paul has. I have noticed for decades, that Paul kind of has this reputation both inside the church and even with people outside of the church, but even inside the church, Paul kind of has this reputation of being this sort of dour, harsh, cynical, kind of angry, curmudgeonly little guy that would be kind of annoying to be around. And yet when you start to read his letters and read them very closely, what you begin to see is you begin to see a guy with a great heart and, and, and a tremendous level of love and compassion uh, for the people that he's in relationship with. He says, I am going to send back to you my very heart. That's how close he and Onesimus have become. Um, our oldest daughter, Shelby, when she first went away to college, she went to North Park University in Chicago. And Jackie went with her to get her set up you know, three, went three days there, helped her move in, got her all set up. And then she left and went to O'Hare. And when she was at O'Hare on her phone, on Facebook, she posted, I just left my heart in Chicago. I mean, that's the depth. That's the level that Paul feels here, not just for Onesimus, but for uh, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he's, he's not just this guy that's teaching hard truths, but he loves people. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred, listen to this now, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while 
that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this is, this is the ask and the gospel logic behind the ask, also known as, um, I want you to have a cheerful gospel heart and not do anything out of, out of compulsion. And you look at verse 14, Paul really wanted Onesimus to stay with him because he, he had been Onesimus to him. He had been beneficial to Paul. But Paul had no legal right under their system to insist that Philemon let him stay and let him off the hook. Yet Paul does appeal to the transforming work of the gospel in the life of Philemon of more power than commands, of more power than laws and rules and edicts, of more power than even policies. He says, I'm going to appeal to something even more. I have the right to tell you to do this, but I'm going to appeal to the transforming power of the gospel in your, your life to do this not under compulsion but out of joy because it is the right thing to do. In addition, Paul is saying that in Christ, we must never think of another person as an asset to be exploited, but rather as a human being to be loved and encouraged and discipled. And then even in verse 15, Paul says, Paul is saying God likely orchestrated this offense against you, Philemon, with the intended outcome that Onesimus would then be saved and would be seen uh, voluntarily by Philemon as a brother now in Christ to restore and to love and to be in relationship with and not as a slave. So can, can God really use offense for his purposes? And that's not a trick question. Yes, he can. He can. Now, here you go. You need to hear this. I want to make sure I don't want you walking out of here tonight going, well, the pastor just said I should go out and sin all I can because God's going to use that for something really good. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that the only thing you and I bring to the table when it comes to our salvation in Christ is our sin. And Jesus takes that and trades places with us, essentially, through the cross and the resurrection. He makes us righteous and holy, and he's the one that takes on our offense, our Sin. So yeah, God can use this for his purposes. And then, and then to remember that our salvation and redemption in Christ is not because of anything that we've done, not because of works that we've done, not because we're worthy, but rather once we're saved, once our heart of stone has been transformed into a heart of flesh by God, that we then go out and do the work of the Lord. We do the work of the gospel. The, uh, redemption Church has seven core values. And the first one you probably hear almost every single week. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. The gospel is going to transform us from being, from being curved in on ourselves and rather turned out and focused out. So Paul says the gospel, if you're truly in Christ, if you're truly in the gospel, it's not about compulsion but joy. He writes in 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth some years earlier. In chapter 9, he writes, each person must give what he or she has determined in their heart and not a result of compulsion, not as a result of compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. We're to give out a joy and gratitude. Paul's even saying if you're not there yet, probably best if you don't do it. You need to wait. And by the way, that's not just about money. That's about the stewardship of our entire lives, our time, our energy, 
and the giftedness, the talents that God has given us as well. So Paul is appealing to all of that here on behalf of Onesimus. As a friend of of Philemon's, as a co-laborer of Philemon's, as a shepherd, just like Philemon is, even as one in, in authority who could command him, he says, I'm appealing to you on the basis of the transforming work of the gospel in your life. Now look at verses 17, 17 through 20. So, if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Paul's saying, I'm putting skin in the game too. It's not just you. I'm putting skin in the game uh, to you. And he says, I write this with my own hand. He's taking an oath here. I will repay it. And then he says, to say nothing of your owing me your very own self. (laughs) That sounds a little bit, I guess that's an early indication, a little Protestant guilt he's laying on Philemon there. It sounds a little bit manipulative, but he's reminding Philemon of something really important that I want to talk about. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Does sound a little bit manipulative, maybe, but it's also true that the gospel and the transforming work and what what Philemon could do for Onesimus is of far greater value than losing an asset. Philemon literally owes his life in Christ to Paul's ministry to him, and that is a huge, huge deal. I want you right now to think about this. And just not just a passing thought. Think about that person or those few people in your life that you would say in some way, shape, or form, you owe their very life, your very life to them. Uh, maybe it was a teacher, that special teacher that worked in your life in a special way. Maybe it was a mentor of some sort. Maybe it's somebody, maybe it's somebody who told you about Jesus. Maybe it's somebody who's discipled you, who has poured their life into you. Think about that person or those few people. Uh, are they still in your life? Uh, are, they, are they long gone? God did the work uh, through them in your life and now they're gone. Where are they now? Think about those people. Who do you owe your very life to? There's two that I would point to in my life. Uh, one of them is my wife, Jackie. Um, Years ago, we're talking 1986. So this is really ancient time. Okay? I went to work at this place. Jackie was already working there. And um, we had a four-story building. Uh, I was on the third floor. She was on the first floor. But we ended up working in the same department, even though we worked on different floors in the building. So we ended up becoming very good friends. And, and I just have to tell you uh, that when I first met Jackie... I, I was uh, 26 years old at the time, and I was, I mean, I was absolutely slayed. I mean, I was done, okay? Um, the, the, I, she was unbelievable. Uh, but we, there was a little bit of a problem. There was an obstacle there. Uh, for the last couple of years, she had been dating and was still dating this um, loser, this guy. So... <laughs> So, she, so, so all I could do is just be a friend, okay? And we worked together and, and we became friends. You need to understand, I had not grown up in the church. I thought Christians were weirdos. I, I didn't want to be around them. I mocked them. I made fun of them. I had never picked up a Bible and read it, but I was sure that it was completely wrong and I thought anybody was stupid to believe in it. Uh, 
Jackie grew up in a church, and her faith was really strong. And so one of the first things I discovered about her was she was one of these Christian Twinkies, okay? And that, and that bothered me. And then it bothered me even more. I still was friends with her, and wow, she just would knock me out every time I saw her. But still, there was this other problem that I had with her. And here's the other problem. It's not just that she was a Christian, but maybe, I don't know if anybody in this room knows it, but she was a part of North Phoenix Baptist Church. Anybody know that church? Okay, yeah, some of you, yeah, okay, here you go. I've been around here a while. So uh, Central Avenue and Bethany Home in Phoenix, some of the most expensive real estate in all of Phoenix, 40 acres. At the time, Richard Jackson was the pastor. He had a television ministry. There were 10,000 people going to that church. Uh, all my friends and I, we used to call it the Bapadome. That's what we called it, okay? We mocked it. We made fun of it. That was her church her parents, her sister, her. And, and so uh, Jackie also didn't have a car at the time, and so she would take the bus down Central Avenue to get to work, and, and there were times when she'd work late, wasn't able to get the bus home. Well, it just so happened that I lived about a half a mile from where she lived, and because I'm a nice guy just trying to help out her boyfriend, I would offer to give her a ride home every now and then, you know? And so we'd go, and we would go right by North Phoenix Baptist, and I would just hammer her. I would mock her. I would, and finally one day I said, I said, look at that place. It's such a scam. Do you give them money? And she said, of course I do, 10% right off the top. And I said, we're paying you too much then. And I was serious. I was like, we got to look at her pay. How do you have 10% right off the top to give to this church? I mean, that's ridiculous. I was just befuddled by all of this. So this went on for like two years. One day I walk into work. I'm now 27, getting close to 28. I walk into work, and I noticed. I could tell her countenance was different. Something wasn't right. So I walked up to her. I said, hey, what's going on? And she said, well is what she said. She said, I gave Ron his walking papers last night. And I had my first conscious experience with something called facial management techniques. So, <laughs> that, must have been, that must be really hard. I'm so sorry. You must be really struggling. You know, that's really hard. Inside, there was this party going on. Cheetos and beer and all this thing, you know, whatever you wanted. You know? It's just, it was unbelievable. So I walk upstairs to my third... My, and, I'm, and I'm pacing around in my tiny little office. So my pacing is like this, okay? And now, this, is, uh, this is before Seinfeld was ever on, on television. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's fine. You can look it up on the internet. But so, this is before Seinfeld was even on television. I was having a Seinfeld episode before Seinfeld was on. If George Costanza had been there, obviously I'm Jerry, not George, but if George Costanza had been there, okay, we would have been having a conversation about what's the proper grace period? How long do you wait? Okay, can you see them having that conversation at Monk's Cafe? You know, how long do you wait? Okay, and remember, this is before social media, before the internet, before any of that stuff. So I thought to myself, okay, a week? That seems a little anxious, a little bit too soon. And then I thought, how about a month? If I just wait a month, and then I thought, nah, this will be in the water sooner than a month, and I better move faster than a month. And literally, I went, five minutes is good. And I walked right back downstairs, you know. <laughs> I walked up. I said, we got we to gotta talk. And, and uh, she said, yeah, I know. I know. So I, could, we, could we talk after work? And so we went across the street to the old Adams Hotel, went into their lounge, had Diet Cokes. She's Baptist, so that was cool. Um, 
And we talked, and I said, look, I, I, I got a problem. I'm really interested in you romantically, and, and if you're not interested in me, this is the end of it. But um, if you are interested, here's the next problem. Uh, you're a church person. I didn't even know how to describe You're a church person, okay? And I'm not. Whatever, whatever the opposite of that is, that's what I am. So one of us is going to have to change, and I don't think it's going to be you. And so if we do this, I really want to do this, like a, a major part of our dating is going to be, I'm going to go to church with you and you're going to help me figure this out. And she said, well, I am interested in, and yeah, I, I've never dated a non-Christian before, but she said, I just see God all over you. And I'm willing to walk through that with you. I think God is moving in your life. And here's what, it was, this was the most interesting part. She said, I see God working in you because you are so vehemently opposed to this. She saw God working because of my, I had such a strong negative reaction to it. And I said, all right, now, you need to understand what I think of North Phoenix. I've never been there, but I understand what those people are like. You have to understand. You cannot leave my side when we walk into that church because it's going to be like I'm walking into a prison and they're going to yell, fresh fish, and they're all just going to be around me and it's going to be horrible. You got to go to the bathroom before we go to church because you can't even go to the bathroom there. You cannot leave me alone with those freaks in there. I have to work through this this on my own time and she said fine we're going to do that and that's where God saved me North Phoenix Baptist Church it was awesome so I here you go I owe my very life to my wife in that regard now there's one other person and and the story actually coalesces a little bit so I came to Christ God saves me we start attending the young adults Bible study there and uh, I loved worship at North Phoenix. Richard Jackson was a great communicator, and I kind of got him, but um, these, these uh, Bible studies I didn't get. And this is, I'm not, I'm not speaking pejoratively against these guys. I, don't, I just don't think they knew any better. They were in a Baptist context where everybody already knows the Bible. I, I, the only thing I knew was that Jesus was my favorite cuss word and Moses was a really good player in the NBA. That's the only thing I knew about the Bible. <laughs> Literally, okay? I just didn't, I didn't get it, okay? And so when they would say, all right, open up your Bibles to Ephesians, I'm like, what is that? Some sort of a Bible skin disease? I don't even know what that is. You know, I'm looking. Oh, there's a table of contents. But there's 66 books. Where do you find it? And then who wrote it? Why did they write it? I don't understand what's going on in this. They, they just taught assuming that you already knew this stuff. So Bible study wasn't good for me. About a year later, a friend of mine in the marketplace calls me up and he says, hey, there's this guy who has started a brand new marketplace Bible study in all these different locations, and it's terrific. I think that he is a wonderful Bible teacher. I think you'd really connect with him. Uh, I'd like to take you, well, it's, it's at noon at the Phoenix Women's Club at 3rd Avenue and Earl. Um, we'll eat a little, they provide you with lunch, we'll eat a little lunch. There's about 250 people that go there, but they'll provide you with a little bit of lunch, and then he speaks for about 45 minutes. I heard the words Bible study, and I said, not interested. Don't, I, I got enough of that Bible study stuff in my life. I'm just not, I just like to go to church. He called me six weeks in a row inviting me. And on the seventh week, he calls up and he says, listen, I'm so sure you'd like this guy, by the way. He's our other founding pastor. His name is Tom Schrader. Anybody ever heard that name in this place? Okay, Tom Schrader. He's, he says, started this new study. Um, he says, I'm so sure that you're going to like this study that... Uh, 
if, we, if you go with me this week and you don't like it, I will buy you lunch um, at, oh, what's the name of the place? Jackie, help me. What's the name of the place? Durant's, at Durant's in downtown Phoenix. Anybody know about Durant's? I mean, that's an iconic Phoenix restaurant. $100 a plate for lunch, okay? And I said, Jay, I'm in. I can sit through anything for a free lunch at Durant's. I'm in. So I thought I'm gonna get a free lunch at Durant. So I go there, and by Tom's own self-description, he would say, it, it, this short, pudgy, little dour, kind of weird guy, sarcastic and cynical, gets up, and he opens his Bible, and he says, turn uh, to the book of Daniel, and he explained where Daniel was, and then he took, took us through what's the historical context, and who is Daniel, and who's Nebuchadnezzar, and what's going on here, and he connect, and I felt like, there's 250 people there, and I felt like Tom was sitting in his easy chair in his living room right next to me just having a conversation with me and explaining God's word to me. And, and after 45 minutes and he stopped, I was angry that he stopped. I could have stayed there the rest of the day listening to this guy teach the Bible. And, and so I, I went and I got my day timer and every third, by the, a day timer is how people in my generation used to keep track of our calendar. So I wrote in there, I wrote, I wrote in there every Thursday at noon, Priority Living of Arizona. I just wrote in there and I never missed it. And, and one thing led to another, Tom started to disciple me Eventually, Tom started asking me to teach for him when he, when he wasn't able to uh, teach at those Bible studies. And then the next thing you know, eight years ago, he's having a conversation with me about coming to Redemption Church. I, I will tell you, Tom's my spiritual father. I owe my very life to Tom. And some of you know he passed far too early, in my opinion. He passed in, in January at the age of 69. It's been very tough I, I, I have never missed anybody the way I've missed Tom. I mean, it's just been amazing. But, and, and, I, and I, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about him. I think about my wife every day too, just so that you're clear on that. But I, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about Tom. I, I talk to him. I know that might feel weird to you. Go to therapy and you'll feel better about it. But I talk to him. I, I, it, I miss him. So who are those people that you owe your very life to? Have you thought about maybe telling them? how encouraging that would be to them. Okay, even, even somebody you haven't talked to in years, if you could, I know it'd be hard, find out where they are, get their address, buy a card, write something. You're going to have to find a stamp. I know that might be hard, but write them. The, the joy that they would get in opening that and being reminded. Verses 21 through 25. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he says, prepare the bed in the guest room. Paul assumes that he's going to get released just like he does in, in Philippians. And, and he also, I, I feel like he's just reminding Philemon that he's going to be around to check on the status of Onesimus. So kind of laying the groundwork for maybe some self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's the last thing I want to talk about for the last few minutes here. Um, one of the themes that's in this letter that I, you just can't avoid, and, and I, I feel like we've got to talk about it, is this, this issue of, of slavery. And I've got to tell you something. I mean, I, I've never lived in any sort of legacy or history that involved the other side of slavery. 
So I don't know what it's like. I don't know the experience. I don't know the thought process of that. But it's apparent in this letter that, that this is a big issue here. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't address the broader question of slavery in, in a way that tries to lay down some sort of policy about it. What is he actually doing here? Because clearly a Christian would abhor the idea of slavery, the idea of owning another person. That, that would be verbal. I mean, there's just no way in Christ that, that, that we, can, we can abide in that. Especially today as we look back and understand our history, uh, even, in this, in, even in this country. Slavery is an abomination. Why doesn't he address it? And if anybody should know anything about slavery, it should be Paul. He's Jewish. I, I mean, his people were part of the Exodus. We're getting ready, by the way, to study Exodus at Redemption Church in a couple of weeks. We're going to do 15 weeks in Exodus. But that's the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, God leading uh, his people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. Why wouldn't Paul uh, address it the way we might want it addressed? Well, a couple of things there. First of all, uh, there's all different kinds of forms of slavery, and the kind that was going on in this particular case is not necessarily what we might think of when it comes to slavery. Now, that's not to dismiss it at all. It's just a little bit different than the way we might uh, think about it. It was actually part of their economic system. Um, you, you could literally, uh, your own free volition, you could, quote, sell yourself to somebody and become their indentured servant for a particular amount of time. It, today we might, here you go, today, today we might even call it an employment contract. Something like that, okay? So you could do that. Uh, it's a measured choice by the one who's indentured. This, the second thing that happened there is that it was also a way that you could work off debt. So if you had a debt to somebody and you had, for some reason, you had no way to be able to pay it, Okay, you could work it off for, for that person. But it was a legal binding contract that you would do that. You couldn't leave, and you couldn't take money and leave. It's possible that's what Onesimus was doing uh, with Philemon. And think of it this way. How many of us are in debt today? I, I, if you own a house, you're in debt. Yeah. I mean, you have a mortgage. Okay. Now, I, you can't buy a house without a mortgage. I get that. I, I, I'm not saying don't. Save up before you buy a house. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But just understand what happens. Uh, we have car loans. Here's the biggest problem. Consumer debt. Uh, for every adult in the United States right now, consumer debt, in, here you go, just credit cards, not, not any other kind of debt, just our credit cards, okay? The average amount uh, that an adult in the United States is carrying right now is $13,000. Okay, we have enslaved ourselves to our lenders. That's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says the borrower is the slave to the lender. And literally, in their economic system, you could do that. You could work it, work it off like we are. By the way, you miss a couple of payments, you'll see how life really works, okay? Uh, and then the, the third way was, was if you committed a crime against somebody, rather than going to prison, you could work out a deal where you would become their indentured servant uh, again as well. So you could work for them. But there was actually a rule that said you couldn't do that for more than six years. And once the six years was over, um, whoever you were working with for that you had offended, they had to release you and your family and they had to give you money to send you on your way. That was one of the, uh, one of the rules. Uh, furthermore, the Torah, which Paul, of course, was intimately familiar with, had this to say about the system. You could never kidnap or otherwise take a person by force in order just to be a, just because you wanted a slave. And this was unique among all ancient 
law codes. Uh, and you, you also could not harm the slave in any way, including homicide or other forms of maltreatment. Again, the, the Torah was the only ancient le legal code to have these restrictions. Why? Because of the Exodus. They knew what a problem this is. And yes, there, were no, there are known parts in the first century where slavery was like we understand it in America. There, there were uh, oppression, forced labor, no choice. But much of the slavery in Paul's situation uh, was actually a, a, a chosen economic decision. But there's actually a bigger reason why Paul doesn't deal with it that way. Bigger reason. Paul knows that there's something better and more valuable than necessarily dealing with policy, edicts, and rules. I'm not saying we, we need to eliminate policy, edicts, and rules. I'm not saying that laws aren't necessarily good, but there is something deeper, something that gets to our hearts, and that's brotherly and sisterly love in the body of Christ because of the gospel. Rules and policies and edicts, I have found just through life, even though we need them, they just have a way of eventually eliciting suspicion, cynicism, and mistrust. Uh, even in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the good, holy, of God, wonderful law had become a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, God never intended it that way, but our fallen sinful hearts turned it that way. That's the problem. That, that's how we end up using these things. It, the, humans always seem to have a way uh, to use rules and policies to divide, to divide and not unite. Paul even says in Romans, he says, in the law there is sin. In other words, you may not be thinking about something at all, and then somebody comes along and writes you a memo and says, you can't do this anymore. And what, my first thought anyway, I assume I'm kind of like some of you, my first thought is, all right, well, how do you get around this? You know, and, and now I just want to do it even more, you know? Walk by a wet paint sign, fingerprints all in the paint, you know? It's just something that appeals to our flesh. Uh, outside of Payson, years ago, anyway, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a sign that said no shooting, and it was just riddled with bullet holes. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I don't know what it is about the law, okay? Humans, human hearts always have a way of eventually ruining rules. Paul is saying the gospel's better. It's not that we don't need the rules, and he kept insisting in the letter, I could tell you to do what's right. I could command you to do this. Clearly, what you need to do is restore Onesimus. But I'm asking you to do this because of the gospel, because of Christ in you. You look at verses 8 and 9 and 14 through 16, and you hear that coming through in Paul's appeal. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you for Onesimus. In verses 14 through 16, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not, uh, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. There's more than one way to deal with this, and he says the gospel could be the best and should be the best way. If you live in gospel love, the rules tend to fade or should fade into the background. That was, that was Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 22 when they said, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because in that, all of the law is fulfilled. If you love God and love your neighbor you're going to fulfill the law. 
And that's what Paul is appealing to, joy, not compulsion. And and I'll tell you, I'm not an anti-law, anti-rules, anti-policy guy. I know we need those things, and many of them certainly need to be better. But, But there's also the gospel. And that's where our hearts come in. And that's where this transformation can happen. I... I get into trouble sometimes when I teach this with, with parents because they're not sure about this. But, and by the way, I learned this from Schrader uh, anyway. So if you want to blame somebody, you can blame him. Um, when Jackie and I raised our two daughters, we decided we're going to have conversations instead of rules. And that's really hard because conversations take longer. It involves relationship. It involves give and take. It involves wisdom. It involves instruction and discipline and correction and and rebuke and all of those things. Rules are easier. They are. They're just easier. You just lay down the law. This is the rule. I'm the dad. You're not. And that's the way it is. But we found that having conversations was better than having rules. We'd have a conversation about everything that came up. We were in the process discipling them. And as Tom would say, in that process, we were hoping to make them Less dependent on us and more dependent upon God. That's what we wanted from our kids. So relationship, not policy. Love, not edicts. Conversations, not rigid rules. Gospel, not compulsion. You know, if, if rules alone, law alone, had the ability to reform and redeem our fallen sinful hearts, we wouldn't need 61 of the 66 books in this Bible. We wouldn't need the New Testament. We wouldn't need Jesus. Because the law should have been able to do it. Paul is appealing to a much higher authority here. And I know that sounds radical, but that's, that's what the gospel is. The gospel really is radical. That this rabbi... God in the flesh would go to the cross on our behalf so that we would never have to do that. And he paid for our sin. And then he was raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That's pretty radical. And that should be transformative in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, we we thank you for, for Paul's instruction to Philemon and what it could possibly mean for us today. Um, we've experienced just in this week, this week, we know the wickedness, the darkness, and the brokenness of this world. We've all had a part in that. But God, your son has come to redeem that and start us into something new and fresh and redemptive restorative and wonderful. God, change our hearts. Renew our minds. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus so that we could see the world through a gospel lens and we could live accordingly. Give us the courage to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.